Good evening. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We're going to look tonight at verses 1 through 13. That's Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and and have no fear. And when when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this night before we come now before this unique test, that your spirit would open our minds to understand it, to understand what you are revealing to us in this passage. May you stir our hearts to receive this word. May you lead us as we go from here, receiving and understanding this so that we might live lives that reflect your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, some of you were around before smart TVs and streaming devices, and you remember this momentous shift that we took in our home viewing options in the late 90s and 2000s when we went from VHS tapes, those clunky big things, to DVDs. Now, one of the perks of this technical, technological move were the added menu options that the DVDs provided to us when we watched a movie. You could jump to your favorite scene. You could even watch the movie in a different language. But certainly the most popular feature DVDs offered were the menu options, which allowed viewers to gain a behind-the-scenes look at the movies, their actors, 
the writers, the directors. You know, whether it was Cast Away, Lord of the Rings, Home Alone, the behind-the-scene options gave you a glimpse. What was the writer, what was the director precisely thinking in that scene? What were the actors, what were the actresses really like? What was the greater meaning behind the movie? Well, in this evening's passage, we get one of those rare behind-the-scenes views in the Gospels. It's as if the, the writer, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes us here into a different menu option. We step back from the action of Jesus, and we gain a glimpse into who he is in his fullness. With Peter, James, and John, we're taken up the mountain, and we see Jesus is transfigured. His true heavenly glory is revealed in this passage. It's not as if this transfigured glory is separate or inconsistent with his incarnate state, but for the moment, the veil of his flesh, which veiled his heavenly glory, it's, it's stripped away And human eyes are given a glimpse into who he is. Who Jesus is in his divine glory as the second person of the Trinity. As we look at this passage this evening, we're going to do so through three perspectives. You probably saw the sermon title, Perspectives on the Transfiguration for Christian Discipleship. We're going to look at three here. First, we will look at the transfiguration from the perspective of Jesus himself. He walked up this mountain. He experienced this glorious cloud and the voice of the Father. What what does this mean for him, for Jesus? Second, we will look at the transfiguration from the perspective of the three disciples who are present here, Peter, James, and John. What is the significance of their perspective as witnesses of the transfiguration? And thirdly, we will look at our own perspective on the transfiguration. Our perspective as readers of this inspired text in relation to God seeking a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. So three perspectives, the perspective of Jesus, the perspective of the disciples, and our perspective. Jesus, of course, is the main actor, the main character in this passage, the one who is himself transfigured. As much as this was a spectacular moment for the disciples, all the more it was spectacular for Jesus. If we were to read these verses in the whole sweep and the whole flow of the Gospel of Matthew, we look at the previous chapter and we see that this comes right on the heels of some very important events. If you look at the previous chapter, if your Bible's open there, just flip over to chapter 16 and put your eyes down, verse 21 and following, you'll see that it is there that Jesus makes clear that from this point forward, he's going to emphasize his mission for his death and resurrection, his mission to fulfill the will of the Father in his death and resurrection. He sees the end. He sees the end of his life in its death. This is something Peter doesn't fully grasp. But Jesus is the obedient son who commits to the will of the father even to the point of death. Now, this is a hard 
pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow then as it is today, and the shadow of the cross will only grow longer and darker from this point forward in the course of the gospel. Jesus turns then in chapter 16 from telling his disciples of his own imminent death to, starting in verse 24, informing his disciples that their own lives must be cross-shaped lives. That is, the life of discipleship it will be a cruciform life. Now, this is a challenging truth, both for them and for the disciples, but it is also a challenging truth for us. But Jesus understands here that the beloved will of the Father, knowing that will, fulfilling that will, living in communion with him, submission to that will, that there's greater joy in that than in any, that overshadows any pain that we might have in this life. This is true for him. It is no less true for us as his disciples. Well, in the wake of this highlighted purpose made clear here in chapter 16, that the remainder of Jesus' ministry will be taken up with looking forward to the passion and the cross. He turns now six days later to go up the mountain, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 17. He went up this high mountain, as we learn, to pray. We're not sure what high mountain he went up. It's not made explicit for us, but it was a mountain, and it was high, And he went there to pray. And he took Peter, he took James and John, these three disciples, with him. Now we know that Jesus would often steal away and pray. It is one of the remarkable realities, isn't it? That though Jesus is the Son of God, very God of very God, as the incarnate Son, he still prayed. He prayed frequently communing with his father. And I think that should encourage us that the same means by which the human Christ communed with the father, we commune with the father. Prayer is the the means by which we creatures carrying around this flesh, walking this earth, commune with God, and we see Jesus himself participating in that. And so Jesus, he goes up and pray, but this time it will be different than the other times that we see him stealing away and praying. It will be utterly unique from the other times. And while Jesus prayed as we do, he will experience something here in his transfiguration that we never will. Now, it was, of course, the Father's will that Jesus should ascend this mountain and experience this transfiguration. Like many mountain scenes found throughout Scripture, and Kevin mentioned this in his sermon this morning, in these mountain scenes, God is up to something. God is doing something momentous in moments like these, these high moments on mountains in Scripture. You know, we might call exalted times in our own lives mountaintop experiences. And we often mean that in a metaphorical sense. But in scripture, metaphor and reality are frequently brought together. And here God is doing something big. He's doing something special on a literal mountain. Like he did with the giving of law, the law with Moses. The Sermon on the Mount, Calvary, 
itself. Elevated places in scripture, they're often uh, associated with elevated purposes. And here on this high mount, God is doing something special for his son. As we see Jesus on the mountain, there's the backdrop. The, The purpose of Jesus' life leads to death. He must face the cross. Now imagine if you were told tomorrow precisely how and when you would die. And that in your death, you would suffer many things. Take that understanding and add the supernatural evil of Jesus bearing our sins. And and you can imagine the, the potential gloom on Jesus' life, on his soul, that is going to be going forward. How would you feel knowing that that was before you? Now, if we think this wouldn't affect Jesus, because after all, he's fully divine and somehow immune from these matters, we can always just look to the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane, where we see, interestingly enough, these three same disciples, Peter, James, and John. And there Jesus is contemplating the cup that he must drink, the death he will soon die. And he's so distressed there that we learn he sweats drops, great drops of blood. And he cries out in agony to his father. So breaking into the tension and stress of the dawning passion of Jesus found in chapter 16, the father sweeps him up this mountain, and we learn he covers him in a bright cloud and surrounds him with his own voice. Now, the cloud here is, of course, important because throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, is a cloud. This cloud shows the intense presence the warmth of the Father here on earth. It's as if the Father takes his Son here and he embraces him. What's more, he speaks to him, just as he did in Jesus' baptism. The Father expresses his love, his pleasure in his Son. You know, like an earthly father who takes his small son and blankets him in an embrace and says he loves him and he's glad he's his son. He's pleased to know him. He's pleased to live with him. The heavenly father embraces his son in the cloud and he speaks words of love, words of pleasure. Now, why does he do this? Why does he do so at this point, at this precise point in Jesus' life? It's preparation for Jesus' passion. Jesus has made clear he's on the road to Calvary. It's going to be a hard road, but it is the beloved will of the Father. Now, does the the Father leave his son alone, unprepared, to, to walk this road with no memory of his loving kindness? No, he takes him up this mountain. He prepares his son by communicating to him his love, his presence, his pleasure in him as father to son. 
Now, as Jesus will go from here and, and face the hatred of the Jewish leaders, the mocking of the crowds, the desertion of the disciples, what precisely will sustain him? What will enable him over and over again to turn and say, not my will, but your will be done? It's the knowledge of his father, his love, and his pleasure in him. When we, if we're loving human parents, drop our children off at college, or perhaps we send our child to camp or a difficult endeavor, we do something similar when we're at our best, don't we? We take our son. And we tell him how much we love him. We take our daughter and we tell her how proud we are of her. We hope these words will ring in their ears, live in their memories, sustain them when things get hard. And of course, for those of us who have had parents that have done this for us, who have spoken these kinds of words, communicated this sort of warmth to us, we know that it helps. It sustains us. It encourages us. It strengthens us on a much more elevated scale and in light of really the turning point of all of history that is what the father is doing here for the son it's a glimpse here isn't it of our son of the son's humanity of jesus christ's humanity he's not above in his humanity the need for love for encouragement for a reminder And yet as much as this moment reminds us of Jesus' humanity, in the midst of his coming passion, it is an inescapable glimpse of his divinity. For as Jesus ascends this mountain, is there with Peter, James, and John, he is transfigured before them. Something of the glory of heaven, of his divine status, shines forth on earth through him. And this is utterly unique, utterly unprecedented in Jesus' life at this point. It is the glory of God shining out of Jesus. It says in verse 2 that his face shone like the sun. Now the sun, of course, is its own source of light. Light is shining from Jesus because he is the light of God. Light of light as the Nicene Creed says, communicating inescapably that if Jesus is light, he is God. If Jesus is light, he is God. He does not reflect light like the moon does, right, from the sun. No, he is light. This transfiguration demonstrates the divinity of Jesus, and what's more, it's a foreshadowing of the new creation. It's showing him the fruits of his coming labors as he will move from humiliation to his exalted status. His work on the cross and his resurrection, it will usher in a new creation, something we get get in bits and pieces now but will enjoy in fullness even when we ourselves enjoy our own resurrection. Now, the glory of this new world created through the cross and resurrection is foreshadowed on this mountain so that Jesus has a clear vision of what is before him on the other side of his passion. There's not only an assurance of the Father's love and pleasure, there's this glimpse 
of the fruit of his obedience to the Father, the glory of the new creation that's ushered in through his work. A glory that does not come separate from the work he's about to accomplish on the cross. It's a natural end of the work, of the fulfillment of the will of the Father. So this transfiguration, it is significant from the perspective of Jesus. Its importance is highlighted in that it comes on the hinge of his ministry as he is turning toward Calvary. In Christ's humanity, he's reminded on the mountain of the Father's presence, of his love, of his pleasure in him. But what about the others present there? Jesus was not alone on the mountain. With him are Peter, James, and John. So let's now turn to their perspective in this passage. The first thought we might have looking at Peter, James, and John, these three, is why these three? Why these three? Because as we know, there's 12 disciples. Why did these three, only these three, go up on the mountain? Well, we're never told. You know, there's many guesses, many very well-educated guesses put forth. There's no definitive answer. But one interesting note, relevant fact, is that it's these same three, Peter, James, and John, who, as we've already noted, were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They will be present with him in his agony there in the Garden. And, of course, these three will go on after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and be great witnesses to Jesus, some in martyrdom, but all of them in their preaching and in their teaching as apostles. So this moment would echo forward forward for them as a reminder of who Jesus is. What is this new world that is coming into existence after Jesus' death and resurrection? What is being inaugurated through his work and what will they be announcing in the gospel? Well, it is these three, Peter, James, and John, who go up the mountain with Jesus and are given this behind-the-scenes look. Now, up until this point, from their first call as disciples until now, they, they had only known Jesus in his flesh and blood. Even so, they walked with him, and even in the previous chapter, in the voice of Peter, they confessed Jesus is the Son of God. They knew they were not dealing here with Jesus, just merely with a first century Jewish man. But however haltingly, however haltingly they believed this was the Messiah, however fleetingly at times it seems they understood who he truly was, they were about to experience and see something entirely new. From flesh and blood, Before them, Jesus was transfigured. This wasn't just a mere private moment for Jesus and the Father. It was before them. Now again, his physical presence was changed and they gained a glimpse of his eternal nature. Peter, later in his ministry, makes clear that this remarkable event did happen. It was not merely symbolic. It was not a mythical symbol that gives us a deeper view and glimpse into the spiritual world. Jesus was real. This transfiguration before Peter's eyes was real. 
And we read about that. We read about it earlier in the passage or earlier in this service from 2 Peter 1. Remember, he says in that passage, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says with the voice of the apostles that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking there in 2 Peter 1 about the transfiguration. And he goes on to give the very words in 2 Peter 1 that the father said to the son on the mountain. So for Peter, for James and John, this moment that they witness is going to be for them a touchstone, a touchstone for their ministry. It highlighted the the realness. It highlighted the true truth of who Jesus is in his humanity, in his divinity, as the incarnate son of God. Well, the, the reason this was so indelibly marked in Peter's mind and message was because of the the manner of this experience. Here they are with Jesus like so many times before, perhaps maybe a little more special because they are up on this high mountain. But out of nowhere, Jesus changes. The brightness of his divine glory emanates forth. And they see with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who it says here were talking with Jesus. So it's one thing, you got the divine nature shining forth, that's amazing, but then you have these dead people who are before their eyes, these great men of the faith, Moses and Elijah, they're talking with Jesus. Now these two figures, Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets. The disciples learn here visually what they will learn from Jesus' very mouth, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. All that had proceeded in God's revelation and action lead to him, to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, now as Peter is taking this scene in, he recognizes there's something remarkable going on. And, and he, he enjoys it. He likes it. He He wants it to last. He wants to set up some temporary abodes to prolong this experience, perhaps memorialize it. And so they're drinking in this spectacular atmosphere. And then God shows up. The voice of God comes. The bright glory of God the Father envelops. And he speaks of his love and of his pleasure. And at this point, the disciples as you and I would be, were terrified. They immediately fall on their faces. Now, of course, there's something here of the glory of God, the holiness of God, and the understanding that they are a people of unclean lips, like the prophet Isaiah. They are a sinful people. They are unworthy before the brightness of the glory of the mighty power and holiness of God. But why was God uniquely here, interested in striking fear into them as disciples. Do you remember the last time you were scared? Really, really, really scared. Maybe it was a point of uncertainty in your childhood, a moment of crisis or tragedy in your life. Whatever the occasion was in your life, my guess is you are able to rehearse 
the precise moments in and around that time of intense fear. I know it's a cliche, but I have moments from my boyhood in the department store where I can't find my mom and I am struck with fear and I can still replay those in my mind. That's a common one. I have others. I'm sure you have some as well. Those times of intense fear which sort of slow down everything and we can recall them. This flash from heaven, this presence, this mighty voice it drove a permanent spike into the memory and psyche of these disciples so that they would never, ever forget. They would never forget what was revealed to them here on this mountain. It would shape them over time, their convictions as to the reality of their faith, the clarity, the power of their message. But you will notice that that in light of the fear of the disciples in this moment, what what does Jesus do? He ministers to them. That's remarkable, isn't it? As we've seen, this is a momentous moment in Jesus' own life. As the glory of heaven comes down and he's transfigured, this is utterly unique for him. But despite that, Jesus, the servant, Jesus, the good shepherd, he's, he's ready to minister. And when the disciples were on their faces in fear, Matthew tells us Jesus came and he touched them. The divine one, clothed in human flesh, he touches them. He reminds them of his presence, reminds them of his humility. And just as the father spoke to him, he speaks. And he says, rise, have no fear. And they rise. And it says, at this point now, they see him only the touch the face the words of jesus this is the comfort for the disciples what a remarkable savior and friend who knows our weaknesses and strengthens us by his presence through his word that same word he spoke to them he speaks to us through the inspired words of scripture as jesus and his disciples would soon leave this mountain. They, yes, would have been comforted. They would have been struck by what they saw and perhaps played the scene over and over again in their minds. But the lasting directive I submit to you that we see here would have been from God the Father. The lasting directive is from God the Father as he engulfs his son and he spoke to his disciples. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Remember the scene. You have the representative of the law, Moses. You have the representative of the prophets and Elijah. These two talking with Jesus. But the father says to those who would become pillar and foundation of the church, these apostles, what does he say? Listen to him. Listen. To Jesus. This father, of course, is not saying, don't listen to Moses. Don't read the prophets. He's saying, listen to their voices only insofar as they are filtered through the voice of Jesus Christ. All the law in the prophets lead to and are interpreted by Jesus Christ. And what the father is saying to the disciples here is implicitly, 
I think, that they have not been properly listening to him. What else explains the repeated misunderstandings that we see in a place like chapter 16 with Peter where he doesn't get it? He doesn't get it that it is the will of the Father that the Messiah must suffer and die. The Father is saying, repent and turn with open ears again to Jesus. For when you hear his voice, you hear the very voice, the authoritative voice, the final voice of heaven. Well, as we turn from looking at the transfiguration from the perspective of these disciples of Peter, James, and John, perhaps no other point here lines up more perfectly with what we, in our perspective, are to see and hear than this, that it is the will of the Father that we listen to Jesus. Out of all the cacophony of voices that we hear in this world, some very loud, some very compelling, often very seductive. We are to listen ultimately only to the one, to the one voice. That is, we're to filter all that we hear through this one voice of Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets, they're not abolished by Christ. He fulfills them. He gives the authoritative interpretation of them. Thus, in order to to understand the scriptures, all of God's revelation, we must turn to him. We must learn his teaching. So as as we read about this grand scene, we try to perceive its significance, we hear with the disciples the full weight of the Father's command. Listen. Listen to him. That is the great call of discipleship, isn't it? It is to listen to Jesus, which of course entails following him and obeying him. Disobeying Jesus means we're not truly willing to listen. But we're to be humble, open, teachable as the Father instructs us to listen to his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've had opportunity to teach a young child, you know what it is to say, are you listening to me? Are you? Are you really, truly? Are you, are you listening to me? When we say that, we're not saying, are the sound waves from my mouth reaching your ears? We are asking whether our words are being welcomed, whether they're being understood, processed, whether there's a subsequent willingness to act on the words that we're communicating. That is a question for us as we grasp our perspective in this passage. Do we welcome the words of Jesus? Do we understand them given all the resources at our disposal? Are we seeking to understand what he is saying to us in his word? Do we have hearts that desire to obey him? As the Father opens to us the glories of Jesus, he communicates his love and pleasure to him, and he turns to us and says, listen to Jesus, keep his commandments, for in that you return the love that has been sent from heaven to you in him. As we saw this scene, for all its splendor, for all its magnificence, it's terrifying to the disciples, 
There's, a, there, there's certainly a, something awestruck, right, about their fear. And there was also something truly healthy in that spiritual sense of their fear. We are called all throughout the scriptures to fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It is the knowledge that there is a God and we are not. It is a knowledge that God has a revelation. God has a word. His law is woven into the fabric of this universe. He stands as judge over all. It's good. It's healthy to have a view of the sovereign, all-powerful God, and for that view to instill within us a fear. Why? Because a big fear of God, and I want to be clear here, I'm not talking about a craven fear, but a big, respectful fear, which the disciples have in this passage. When we have that, we are open to him and willing to be ruled by him in a relationship. What's more, the... The tiny, the the nagging fears that so rule our lives are knocked out by it. This is how the fear of God works. When we fear him rightly, it undercuts the tyranny of the fears which rule our hearts. Which rule our hearts when we do not bow the knee before our Lord. Now I don't know what precise fears tempt your hearts here this evening. I could guess because we are all touched by our culture, our overlapping circumstances, but I would have you think through your days, your moods. Now, if you're not a Christian, certain fears will literally rule you. If you are a Christian, you will be tempted by and fall into pits where you fear something for a time, perhaps more than God. But what do you fear? Not being accepted, not being successful not having the right answers? Do you fear weakness? Do you fear pain? Do you fear loss? In these times, do you fear the virus? Do you fear social and political instability? Some of these are very legitimate fears, and I don't desire to discount them, but they can turn into tyrannical fears if they're not given over to God. For that is what, it, is what we must do to turn all over to God so that a big fear, a proper fear, of who he is as sovereign, as caring, as interested, as powerful, so that that fear formed by his character can rule over us. Let this grand event on a high mountain in the first century Israel shape your fears. For on this mountain, God himself wants you to see him alone, and him you shall fear. And in your proper fear, We will see Jesus, who is the perfect expression of God because he is God. This Jesus is with us as we gather together. He feeds us from his word. He feeds us from the table. He cares for us by the Spirit. And as the Spirit ministers Christ to us, he would never have us forget that the cross is at the center of his life. And it should be at the center of ours. We can be transfixed here in this passage by the glory of Jesus and want that same glory to dominate our lives. But remember, in Jesus' life, his heavenly glory was a foreshadowing of his exaltation. It gives us a glimpse. It gives us hope of what's to come. It's a hope of something that has not yet come, however. It has not yet been fully fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The transfiguration did not give the template for Jesus' life. 
nor does it provide the template for the Christian life. The template for Jesus' life was the cross, and he tells his disciples in chapter 16 that if you were to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Forever will save his life, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we are to follow Jesus, the cross precedes glory. The way up is the way down. First humiliation, then exaltation. Let us not desire heaven and be unwilling to follow the road of the cross because the way of the cross is the way of Christian discipleship. So three perspectives. Jesus, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and our own. For though this transfiguration took place in space and time in first century Israel, it reaches up into eternity, and by this recording for us, it gives us a perspective on the realities of our faith that lead us to exalt Christ, to listen to him alone. It leads us to fear God alone, that we might be ruled by that greater fear and not by the gremlins of this world. We are reminded that on the other side of the cross is exaltation, is glory, is the perfect presence of the triune God. This reminder is to feed us, it's to strengthen us, to remind us that God cares for us. He ministers to us. He calls us, yes, to walk an obedient road that entails suffering, but he will care for us. He will encourage us. He will strengthen us in that way of discipleship. Well, as Jesus descends the mountain with the disciples, they receive a command to not reveal what has been shown to them. The time to reveal such matters to a larger audience will await a further revelation in the cross. The disciples hear this, and and they still have questions. Did you notice that? About a prophecy in Malachi, about Elijah coming before the Messiah. And Jesus reveals to them the connection to John the Baptist. And what does Matthew say at the very end of this passage? They understood. Now, we know the understanding of the disciples could ebb and flow. Only after the resurrection do we see the bold confidence of Peter as he stands up among the Jews and announces the grand scope of the God's plan that culminates in Christ. But this word you see in verse 13, it's a foretaste of their future obedience. They understood. As we close, let's ask ourselves, do we hear God's word tonight? Do we understand? Will it be for us a deposit in our ongoing sanctification that God is working in our lives who calls us to himself and he says be holy for I am holy may it be so by his grace let us pray together heavenly father we thank you for by your spirit this passage which grants us a glimpse a glimpse into your care your presence for your son and for what you did for him as he turned and set his face like flint for Jerusalem, as he set his face toward the cross, how you surrounded him in your embrace and how you spoke words of love and encouragement to him. We thank you for this because we know that that same care, that same encouragement comes to us who are your sons and daughters, if indeed we are by faith. 
And Father, we thank you for the perspective we have here to understand that Christ is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment of all your revelation. We thank you that as we come to your word, you have given us your final word in Jesus Christ. And I pray you would help us as we go from here and we seek to understand your words and align our thoughts, align our affections, align our actions according to it, that you would fill us with a knowledge of Christ, filter all that we learn through him and through his teaching. And we thank you, Father, that you point us over and over again by the Spirit to Jesus to listen to him. Give us ears to listen. It's in his name we pray. Amen.